Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's current affairs program. My name's Emma Webb and this week I'm joined by the director of the New Culture Forum, Peter Whittle, and Rafe Hadelmanku, historian and senior fellow here at the New Culture Forum. So let's begin with uh, this week's story about migrants, particularly um, in Dover, this um, story that we saw in the Times this week that um, some residents have been literally sleeping with sledgehammers underneath their beds. Um, because they've had so many issues with people breaking into their houses, um, breaking into their gardens. One um, young migrant who forced his way into a woman's home made her lock her dog in the bedroom and demanded to use her phone to make a, well, demanded that she drive him to Manchester. And then when she refused, demanded mm. that um, he use her phone to call someone to pick him up. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on this story? Well, I mean, what I suppose I was quite, surprised to see it actually because I think what's been quite interesting because with this story and with a few others is that including the BBC actually is that there suddenly seems to be some kind of epic of honesty about the reporting uh, it's almost like the pennies sort of dropped I think it might have been since the whole Albanian issue mm -hmm. came up but no it's appalling that this is happening because there obviously I think in one case this woman there was a woman in this report who you know, came across this uh, asylum seeker and um, he said, no police, no police or whatever. They don't obviously want to be, they're on the run. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, obviously to see this written in the Times without sort of some kind of um, soft soaping was quite surprising to me because it, I saw it next to a piece about um, there having been discussions in the civil service about using London's parks mm -hmm. for tent cities, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which does really sound dystopian, doesn't it? You can Although just imagine it now. When you that article was that it was interesting because the, the the article straightforwardly said they were talking about using the parks as tent cities, and then probably about two thirds of the way through the article, it said that the Home Office basically said that this isn't the case and that that was it was just sort of like bending of. I, I know, but the fact is, as we all know, the mere fact that this even came up at presumably mm -hmm. a high level, uh, it, it does not fill one with confidence. No. And actually, it? I mean, it, the, from this story, the impression that you get from this particular town is it's basically overrun and it's terrifying because mm. they have, they're, they're not able to um, leave their doors open so that their dogs can go out. They have to make sure their doors are locked at all times because people are literally jumping into their gardens and coming into their house like this is a serious threat to people's safety it, and the police don't have any means to deal with it well no, no they, they, i think or they're not the willing police to. are not there yeah you know this is the point people are having to deal with this it's enraging actually mm -hmm. and the police uh, are nowhere to be seen if they were there one can't help feeling that they would take a certain kind of attitude and what do you, you think Ray? i just think it's so sad and depressing that we've got to this stage you know i mean what was the uh in King Richard II, Shakespeare said, you know, about England, this, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war. Well, we were a wonderful island. We did have the White Cliffs of Dover and everything protecting us. And, you know, people living in Dover of all places on, on one of those nice cobbled streets, having their afternoon tea, listening to the archers. The last thing that you're expecting is some chap from the, from the continent or from, from North Africa or wherever running through your garden and, in, and into your drawing room. I mean, it, the fact that we're living in that sort of state now, or as Peter was saying, having, having illegal immigrants basically being housed in the central parks and tents, 
you know, in mm-hmm. Kensington Gardens or wherever. I mean, what a shocking state of affairs it's that we have. It's an admission of chaos. It's an admission it? of yeah. chaos, but there's also a, a, the admission of the reality that these aren't women and children fleeing persecution mm-hmm. and war. We now know that the single largest group of immigrants to this country of illegals coming across the channel are Albanians. 12,000 have come over in the, Albanian the, the, men this year alone. Of that 12,000, 10,000 single adult males. There were only 50 who came over two years ago. Now, Albania is not a land riven by war, pestilence, mm-hmm. and persecution. There's absolutely no excuse for them coming over here other than the fact that it's orchestrated by criminal gangs. And it's also worth remembering that this, uh, one of the single largest foreign groups in our prisons is also Albanians. Now, Albania only has 2.8 million people, right? So from 2.8 million people, we have the number one number of cross-channel crossings and the largest group in our prisons. There's something seriously wrong mm-hmm. here when between 1% to 2% of the entire adult healthy male population coming over here, and I'm pretty sure they're not all transgendered people coming, escaping persecution in their home country. Something has gone very wrong here. So we have to face up to that fact. And also, as I've said for years now, it's high time we implemented a proper policy. Forget about trying to push boats back. Let's get scoop up all those boats, take them off onto, on, on ships off to, uh, off to one of the British overseas territories mm-hmm. like St. Helena or, or Georgia in the South Sea Islands and process them there. Because if they're being processed on a windswept island off the Atlantic, I can rest, you can guarantee that after a few weeks of that, the channel crossings will go down to a mere dribble. Well, speaking of incentives in relation to the tent city, one of the proposals has been that they should um, get rid of the ban on on uh, asylum seekers being able to work, which surely would just with these Albanians, for example, coming over, they it would just be further uh, incentive because you just come here and then immediately you can work. Well, yes, but I don't. I don't know how many of them are coming here to work anyway. Well, probably, probably, I mean, probably they're know, working in the I black mean, economy. Many of or them. I think you know there are these gangs and, and, and everything, Albanian gangs. Um, I think that it's just the sheer and utter spinelessness of the people who are meant to be looking after us, meant to be taking care of the country. That is the most worrying thing we've had this week, haven't we? Sort of certain murmurs mm-hmm. from the new administration, if you want to call it that that these things are going to be looked at again and, and that, you know, we will get control of our board. Why anyone should actually even believe that? Um, not after all these years. I think the thing is, as well as what Rafe was saying there, is that what really gets me particularly, and what I think people should always be, um, be aware of, is that now suddenly what we always said has been proved true. So now it's basically that these are mostly economic migrants or, or, or whatever, but certainly not asylum seekers, all young men of fighting age. Um, for so long, the official line was to come down hard on anyone who said that. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, it is true. So, you know, I think one should you know hold to one's own views on this. I mean, people watching, you know, if they kind of get in, you know, because even now you get your Polly Toynbee types if not her, actually saying, you know, how can you be <coughs> so uncompassionate? You know, these are so rubbish, you know. Mm-hmm. Look, well, well on, on BBC Radio today, on the World at One I was listening to, and they had an interview with a French politician who's very involved in these sorts of discussions about immigration. 
and she said if you want to stop them coming over stop making Britain more attractive than France you know this is pretty basic stuff you know in terms of benefits in terms of what you receive here there's a reason people are encamped at Calais and coming over here when they could quite easily go down to Nice and have a nice warm time on the Mediterranean rather than try to come here in October right yeah, how exactly. much mileage do you think there is to this the, this idea that they're, they're gonna make it so that um, anybody who's coming over illegally can't stay here do you think that they're actually going to be able to find a way that, you know, um, I don't even think it's so. about a finding a way. You've just got to have the will. That's mm. been the policy yeah. in Germany, right? So after mm. the great, you know, catastrophe of Angela Merkel bringing in all mm. of those Syrian refugees, the policy now in in, in uh, Germany is that you're only allowed in on a visa and you have to be returned home. They've learned that the hard way. Why that hasn't been touted mm. by Suella Braverman or by Priti Patel before her, I don't know, because it's eminently sensible that you're here because of suffering and you should go back at the end of that mm -hmm. period once the situation is better also if you want to discourage people from coming don't offer them potentially you know a camp city in the heart of london with all of its amenities and everything else but the orkneys you know what's yeah. wrong with that what's no but i'm quite serious about this you know cold climates no but for example when, when, when my mother's family came over in the second world war to fight in, in the in royal air force and in the navy and so forth after the war they were set up in refugee camps they had a choice you can go back to communist Poland. The British government knew that they wouldn't want to do that because of life there. But they were perfectly prepared, my, 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 my mother's cousins, to live in these refugee camps. And they got married there. And they had marriage ceremonies in these refugee camps until time the time came when they were, actually had housing allocated to them. If they were able to do that, why can't, why can't we even contemplate the discussion of refugee camps in this country today? It was good enough for our grandparents' generation to live in these refugee camps, which are perfectly livable places, and yet people aren't brave enough or willing enough to have that discussion today, or even to be aware of the fact that it was quite commonplace in the 1950s. Why is that? Why, why do you think that is? That, 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 that they don't, that, you know, that there's a kind of like optics problem with the idea of suggesting that, that people should actually go and stay I in refugee camps until they can go home. Because I think even whenever we talk about um, asylum, and particularly as you say, Peter, because everybody really, most people have known in their hearts for a very long time, these are economic migrants, despite the attempt to kind of suppress that. I think the EU the, actually called them economic migrants at one the, point. I mean, there's this idea that asylum is so open-ended in some way. Yeah. So what, why, do you, why do you think it is that there is this optics problem? Is this the kind it's of... The whole no, it's the whole notion of be kind. It's, it's the idea that I couldn't possibly see myself in this scenario. No, you have to give them a hotel is room. It, is it this, the and idea it, that there's something kind of it's, cringing, it's, it's, cringing it's, about the idea of even having borders? That there's something just yes, unjust no, about I think that? That's the, I think that's absolutely at the heart of it. I think that, um, yes, it's to be kind. And there are people, I said that they are possibly well-meaning but naive. But I think that far overriding that is actually a dislike of the whole idea that we should somehow or other try to preserve something. They don't like it. They don't want to preserve it. Anything that dilutes it. Peter Hitchens was very clear on this at one point. You know, and it seems to me it's been crystal clear to me for years. Uh, he said, we didn't really care about immigrants. Well, I, you know, when we used to talk about it in the 1970s, he said, anything which is going to dilute or destroy uh, the British Mm -hmm. identity or British state or whatever we were for and I think that that is absolutely what is at the heart of this I was reading comments underneath the time you mean when Peter Hitchens was a Trotsky yes Trotskyist. yes or even I think even David Goodhart said something similar actually that it just wasn't cool to be patriotic anything which somehow went against it and that's that is still very and much and you think there. that the tail end of that is not necessarily that you know 
very straightforward ideological reason, but more that we've we, many people en masse have sort of lost the ability to justify why borders themselves are not somehow inherently unjust. We why they matter. That they've, why been, they're they've been told they're racist. Yeah. And and there are sanctions around that. That's why. No, I agree entirely. My point wasn't about the, the broader issue of borders and so forth. It was more your practical issue of the mm. fact that we have hotels crammed full of people, you know, mm. even five star hotels being told to take in take in these illegal migrants or people claiming asylum. Uh, we've got people, we have government ministers and others, and we had that terrible Labour MP Stella Creasy saying, oh, the Ukrainian example shows us what to do. People should allow all of these asylum seekers into their own homes. Well, I'm sorry, we know now six months after the Ukrainian re refugees came into people's homes, they're not being asked to stay for another six months because it's too much of an imposition on like people. And, but my, so my, my point was about that that's why we aren't willing enough to actually take a cold, hard look at, at having proper refugee camps. It's because people want to have this be kind thing, hotel rooms, come and stay with the family. No, you need to actually build you know, proper uh, refugee camps in this country to process these people, take the take the weight off the councils and off the hotels, but also add a, act as a disincentive. But these are perfectly nice places to stay. They're not some sort of you know ramshackle places. Let's let's move on to um, to Rishi Sunak, um, and obviously, since the last time I hosted this show, it, clearly politics now works in dog years, and so much has happened. Um, because this is also important with respect to Suella Braverman, because I think that, and um, please correct me if you think I'm wrong, you might think I am, I think that she really does actually want to deal with things. I think that she personally has the will um, to get through a lot of these problems, whether it's possible to do that from within the blob, I don't know. Um, but there are, you know, at the moment there is some doubt about whether or not she's going to stay as Home Secretary. Um, Rishi obviously informing his cabinet has done so, I think, with a mind to bringing in the right of the party as he perceives it to try and balance the ship somewhat. So we can talk about Rishi a little bit later, but first of all, how do you think that Rishi's premiership is gonna have an effect on this, this issue to do with the migrant crisis and particularly these poor people in Dover who are basically <laughs> having their homes broken into and can't sleep at night. It's difficult to, to say at this point. We do know that Rishi understands full well that immigration is, is an important issue which he needs to have a, a, at least some attempt at tackling if it's going to be, have any hope of getting anywhere at the next general election. But there's also the idea that people are he, that Suella Brevin was appointed to Home Secretary in the understanding that she was probably going to shoot herself in the foot at some point in the near future and end up being turfed out either by so her she would force herself out by her own hand so, mm -hmm. so but at the same time let's just take things on face value as they are I think it's very good it's a very good appointment I have a lot of time for Suella Braverman I was so pleased to understand what happened behind the scenes with her, between her and Liz Truss and how appalled she was at Liz Truss's attempts to increased immigration now I think I think she can be rather cack handed in her comments and things I don't think she's very she's very slick uh, and she does cause herself unnecessarily scandal at times but um, certainly if the ERG and the right of the party is to maintain a, a force within the, the cabinet we can only hope that they apply pressure to Rishi Sunak but you know at the same time we know full well that the courts always intervene so whatever Swella Bravman is going to try to do I can just see the courts slowing the process down yes I mean uh, or even before you get to the courts her own civil service this is the problem 
is that you know there's this huge layer the blob well yes the blob i always thought the blob really was the education establishment that's how i answered mm -hmm. but yes i mean essentially this sort of whole slice of people just stay there and they, they don't move and essentially they and they're rigged yeah and they will they will thwart indeed they have mm -hmm. been thwarting um, it's worth noting as well, just because you know a lot of people criticise Rishi Sunak for various things. Yeah, in two thousand sixteen, he actually voted for um, EU for Britain to leave the uh, European Convention on Human Rights. Mm. People don't seem to remember which that. is a nice point of synergy between him and exactly. Ben so he's you know you know people forget Liz Truss was the Remainer. He was the Brexiteer, right? Mm, so for some yeah, reason, yeah. people have got this all twisted in their minds. Yeah. And he's spoken out very forcefully about the fact that a woman is a woman. And we see, yeah. we see, we we see talk about people him. seem to be surprised that yeah. he appointed some Brexiteers to his cabinet. And he's appointed <laughs> Kemi Badenoch, of course, to be the Equalities and Women's Minister. And there's talk that Rishi Sunak wants to amend the, the Equality, Equality Act, Act yeah. so that women will be biological women, which mm -hmm. would therefore ban uh, trans persons from from uh, women's sports and safe spaces. So he's not this uh, you know, lefty part of the of the Tory party that everybody seems to think he is. So there's every reason to believe. That if there's a way to, to bypass the courts on these issues, that he will give his support in whatever way possible. Do you think that it's possible for Rishi to unexpectedly pull the Conservative Party back from the brink in time for the next general election? I think that what they've looked over into the abyss. That's the way I see it with this trust. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of looked and they saw their... And it you know, scared the bejesus out of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the destruction. I mean, I think I've said it's time, this time it really looks like they're going. However, I think there is the chance. Uh, what struck me, and I'm, I know a lot of people probably watching won't agree with this, but when I watched the Prime Minister's questions this time, it was reassuring to see what seemed like sentient people speaking. <laughs> I thought he handled it well, actually. Um, you know, and uh, I was Sentience sort of therefore very, very encouraged. I think that the Tory party, though, might have thought they might in a few months' time look back and think, uh, what the hell were we doing? We need became that close. Yeah. What's also interesting is that people change their tune, you know, it being politics. So, for example, uh, David Frost, who's been on this channel, you know, Lord Frost, uh, wrote in the Telegraph today about how. The Tories have got to get a grip on migration, for example, to go back to our, um, otherwise they're doomed. Well, I don't think it's something he's talked about a lot before. So it, these issues are sort of maybe going up. Like you both, I mean, I, I like the fact Suella Brave, Braveman's there, and I like the fact that Camille is there. Um, and uh, the others I don't really care so much really about. Mm -hmm. um, but I think so far, it, they seem to have suddenly got a grip. Yeah. So. You know? All I'd say is that had Rishi succeeded Boris immediately, the Tories will be in a very good position mm. to win at the next general election. I think there's no doubt about that because they're only 5% mm -hmm. behind in the polls. Coming back from 30% with a 30% mm -hmm. deficit is another, is another Although, game entirely. I do wonder whether if, and I think that if Rishi had followed Boris immediately, then we wouldn't end up with the nature of a Rishi government as we will do without that interim of Liz Truss and the madness, the chaos, the staring into the abyss. And so I think that actually the chaos of that 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 few weeks, um, ha and and the staring into the abyss, I think may actually have have been what was required. I think if it had just been straight Rishi, 
we would have ended up with something. I'm not so sure. Well, we can't. We don't really know, do we? We have no idea whether that's true or not. But mm. I, I, I think even if it wasn't Schrodinger's cabinet, even if it, <laughs> but even if it wasn't there, I think the Tory Party would be in a, in a far stronger place because people, I think, have to remember. I know a lot of our viewers, for example, will have been upset about Rishi Sunak, but Sunak wasn't the candidate for the party. He was the candidate for the voters of the nation. And I think people need to understand that. Okay, sure, people on the hard right didn't like Rishi Sunak, but whoever they would have chosen wouldn't have been able really at this point to have posed a real threat to Starmer. There's Rishi Sunak was the one to appeal to people who aren't Tory party members, but who could have voted Tory. You know, in the same way that Blair did to get to the center ground. And you have to, at the end of the day, say, what's the lesser of two evils? Having the Tories in power or having Labour in power? Mm -hmm. Now, if it means biting your lip and having Rishi Sunak as your leader, or the alternative is having Keir Starmer and the woke Labour Party coming in, I would rather bite my lip and have Rishi Sunak knowing at least that it's things could be mm -hmm. bad, but they're not going to be as terrible I, as they would be. I think though, even although obviously we'll never know and we have the benefit of hindsight, but I think that particularly because Rishi was so close to the government in being embroiled in all of the party gate stuff and there was all of the, the tax hoo-ha, I think that if, if it had gone straight to him, we would have seen a continuation of that previous madness. So we got a sort of interlude of Liz Truss's sort of nightmare, and then it's a valid it's a, it's a valid point. But I, I think Rishi Sunak is such a skilled speaker compared to um, Keir Starmer, and he basically represents everything that Keir Starmer previously represented. He was the calm Starmer was mm -hmm. the cut the calm, clear. Uh, yeah. precision uh, details man that Boris wasn't him. and that's exactly what Rishi is and of course Rishi is also Asian which makes it very hard again for the woke ideology or for identity politics to be played against him as it was played against Boris Johnson on, so on that point. But, but hang on just before you go on I mean that yes I think they realize that that's why they've suddenly kind of pivoted to class right mm -hmm. and money um, I think that they really do an injustice to majority of people in this country who don't really care that he's hugely rich oh you know yeah. uh, it's a bit like with the old old Etonian argument do people really care that Boris or Cameron were old Etonians? these are the sort of factors that mean a lot to the Westminster bubble but not mm -hmm. really to most people they think well you know is he good or not or Liz Truss wasn't hugely rich she was terrible it's a kind they of solipsistic sort of snobbery isn't it they, they 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 sort of from their own position of being reasonably elevated, assume that that the rest of the country would have that kind of inverted snobbery of saying, "Well, these people don't I represent think, me because they're." I would say actually, um, it's a little bit, e it's a bit more simple than that. I, th I think what it is is that they just see super politics entirely superficially. They mm -hmm. report on it twenty-four hours a day, and they think he's up, he's down, she's up, he's down. You know, go outside in the country. I think there's the wisdom of crowds, mm -hmm. and I think that they can. Overlooked. And of course the reality is that it was actually uh, Richard Sunak who was the one behind the furlough scheme looking after the yeah, lowest yeah, paid workers yeah. in society. Mm. He understands actually, you know, he was, he is a centre-right person economically, but he's taken his policy centre-left because he knows that's where the red wall are. And he knows what needs to be done there. Mm. You know, you don't get seven hundred thirty million pounds by being an idiot, right? Yeah. And yeah. he fully understands the needs of the voters, particularly his Tory Red Wall voters. Mm -hmm. And that's why you also saw with Leveling Up when he was Chancellor, he was he was actually allocating so much towards the north the, the north of England in terms of funding projects and so forth. So the idea that he's out of touch is completely and also wrong. You, you quite want someone to be in charge who's good with money, yeah. don't you? Mm -hmm. um, it would be a bad sign if, um, as a certain Prime Minister was, um, <laughs> particularly. Sort of leaky with it 
Um, so I wanted to um, bring up uh, this US um, clip, and I, maybe we'll be able to play that or link it um, below, um, uh, from The Daily Show with this guy, I can't remember his name. So Noah something. Trevor, I think Trevor Noah. Is he a Trevor South Noah. African comedian? He's certainly South African. And he was talking about the backlash against Rishi Sunak and how racist Britain is. Watching the story of Rishi Sunak becoming England's first prime minister of color, of Indian descent, of all of these things, and then seeing the backlash is one of the more telling, um, it, it's just one of the more telling things about how people view the role that they or their people have played in, in history. And what I mean by that is this. You hear a lot of the people saying, oh, you, you, they, they're taking over. You, you know, now the Indians are gonna take over Great Britain and, and what's next and what? And, I, and I, I always find myself going, so what? No, no, but, but stick with me here. So, so what? What are, you, what are you afraid of? Right, all of them, all of them. You, you see people in the UK, you see people like Tucker Carlson all the time saying, oh, you, you know what they're trying to do? They, you know, they, they, they won't stop until black people and, and women are in positions of power. And I just found myself watching that clip and thinking, what backlash is he talking about? These people are living completely in their own imaginations. And I know, Rafe, you tweeted well, it's something that hit the nail on the head. So, it's, well, The Daily Show in America has been around for a good 20 years, originally with Jon Stewart. And increasingly, in, it's sort of similar today to The Mash Report in a mm -hmm. way. But in America, increasingly, people are getting their news from these comedy shows rather than from actually watching CNN or Fox News. And so you get it with the Stephen Colbert show and so forth, even James Corden. That's where people get their daily news stories. And Trevor Noah has taken over, and he's being from South Africa, has got this sort of anti-colonial, you know, Britain is the evil empire mindset, and he has for a long time. And so rather than treating accurately the, the election of Rishi Sunak as a great example of how Britain, unique in Europe, almost unique in the Western world, can elect somebody who's, who's not of that indigenous population, he chose to completely subvert it and say that this was that there was a backlash against it. And the evidence of this backlash was one person calling into an LBC radio show mm. and, on the, and, and saying that Rishi Sunak wasn't English because he wasn't white and so forth. And on the basis of that one anecdote, has fa fabricated. He was probably someone who was picked by the producers because he had the, the maddest, mm. most extreme they the, could the find. The problem with the left, though, is that they use anecdote over evidence all the time. One, yeah. one example, one anecdote does not a case make. And yet this happens all the time. Evidence, which we used to back up things with, no longer counts for the left or for the woke brigade. And so you've got this whole story, which is now swept through America and, the, and this audience cheering it, all of whom were wearing masks, mind yeah, you, in October notice. of 2022. They're still wearing masks in the audience. And they all believe because there he's, be he's become this- There is a time capsule of but, tw June 2020. <laughs> but if you're a comedian in America, for some reason you're, you're utterances are taken as gospel in a way that the news broadcasters mm -hmm. are no longer done. It's a very weird world. And he's now become the epitome of what he used to rail against, Fox News' so-called fake news and culture wars, when he's blatantly lying. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think it's part of a, a general change in the US attitude to Britain, a regrettable one. Um, in the past 20 years, certainly not in the 90s, but it is now, there are big parts of American culture which see Britain as being this appalling place. We've talked about the New York Times before. Mm -hmm. right? It is not even just sort of like a, 
a slight amusement about Britain or anything like that. It's outright dislike, outright lies. I mean, they, they famously... bigoted porridge eaters. That's well, they, <laughs> did, they did, did, there's that. Right, but they, they, what they do, they, they also just make sure to hire left-wing writers, British writers, whatever. And I think there was one headline during the pandemic of ethnic minorities left to die in Britain during the pandemic. This, you know, it goes through parts of American culture now. When you see people like this guy, Trevor Noah, um, who I, I'd never heard of before, actually. But even the one before, is it uh, John Stewart you mentioned? Um, and the smugness of them, the smugness of their audiences. And I just think, I, I, you know, why am I even having to listen to this? Why are you imposing this on me, you know? Um, because it's sort but of, it's, it's, it's the, so distorted. The kind of imaginary quality of it. Made, made me think of the whole concept of Orientalism, Edward Said's Orientalism, and this idea that you're, they're basically othering, to use their own well, language. Well, yes, but the thing is, this is the reason I... They're I, creating this weird stereotype that has no basis in reality. But this was not the case originally. I mean, you know, to say we had a good special relationship was, you know, not hyperbole in the past. We really did. But they are, they're kind of like, there's a totally new kind of attitude and the image of uh, the UK now which has come it, maybe it's a generational change remember they're all woke and everything not uh, not unlike the crown right mm -hmm. huge respect usually for the royal family in America now they all basically go along with Meghan Markle or many of them do right mm -hmm. enough do and so now it would be unthinkable for example for a member of the royal family to go to New York and get a massive ticker tape reception as the Queen did in the 1950s or 60s. Actually going right up to Diana and Charles in the 80s with huge reception, huge reception. Wouldn't happen now because there's this kind of general hostility to these parts of Britain, these particular aspects of Britain. Huge change in American culture. I mean, I, I, I find it so dismaying. What is that? What, what's, the, what's responsible for it? Well, I think it is. Um, it's, it's, em it's empire, and it's you know, Britain is seen. You know, there was a wonderful book called Albion Seed, the founding of America, mm -hmm. and how whatever part of America you go to, from cuisine to language styles, you can all trace it to different parts of the UK. Is, you know, America very much is Britain's Do you think child. They're, they're sort of trying to palm off their sins. Well, that's oh, why you have the whole 1619 project, right, mm. which has been performed yeah, by yeah, the New exactly. York Times, and mm. to erase that sort of British connection, the British mm. inheritance. But the broader issue here, I think, for me, is not it's just part this... part of the exorcism, basically. The exorcism of America is to also purge anything that is British. But the purging will never stop. Yeah. So the purging will never stop. But the broader issue for me here, when you see something which is blatant propaganda, blatant lying, is the undue influence that these comedy shows mm, now mm, have mm. over our young. And this is a sickness that's happening now in this country. You've got the MASH report, which is exactly modelled on this programme we're talking about with that terrible Nish Kumar person. And then you've got the last leg on Channel 4 with this one-legged Australian comedian there doing a very similar thing. And then Russell Howard also has on BBC a similar show. Now, this is what the young people are watching. It's left-leaning Marxist comedians giving their take mm -hmm. on world affairs mm -hmm. and on the news. And it's being treated uncritically by the audiences mm -hmm. who think this is an accurate portrayal of the facts and the reality. And of course, these comedians aren't educated in politics. They've got no idea about these sorts of things. They're just giving their opinion as anybody else has an opinion. Mm -hmm. And yet it's forming the minds of the youth in, in Britain and America and in Canada and Australia. Anyone who wants that needs to uh, needs to tune into headliners on GB News because it is actually <laughs> genuinely the most entertaining pay per view show. Mm. Um, let's move on to another topic that I um, picked out for this week just because I I just 
bit slipped by the wayside. No one's really been discussing this. Obviously, it's, it's and I'll go into it in a bit more detail, but this issue surrounding euthanasia has obviously been silently happening in the background and has reached a peak. Um, and there have been two articles this week, one in Spiked, one by Douglas Murray in The Spectator. Um, and it's horrifying, genuinely horrifying. So um, in Canada, and I know, Rafe, you're very familiar with, with Canada and Canadian affairs, they have expanded um, their euthanasia law to include the mentally ill. Um, and what, there's, a, there's a guy here, I've got a, um, a quote from him, um, a guy called Louis Roy from Quebec College of Physicians, who said that euthanasia should be offered to children born with severe disabilities up to the age of one, which is essentially just advocating for murder, in my opinion, um, and to elderly people who are tired of living. Um, and there are statistics also from Health Canada of people wanting euthanasia, um, that the reasons they cite are for things like loneliness or because they believe they'd be a burden to their family and friends. Um, and a psychiatrist as well saying that one patient um, told him that he wanted it because he believed no one would ever love him. A veteran suffering from PTSD and a brain injury was outraged when he was offered euthanasia. So these stories go on and on and on. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because of, I mentioned Douglas's article in The Spectator, Spectator this week. I had heard nothing about this. And if it wasn't for Douglas's article, I don't think I would have. It, it's totally horrifying. This Belgian schoolgirl who was on a trip, um, uh, school trip, when a terror attack happened, all of her schoolmates were killed. She managed to survive. Um, she was only 17. Now, some years have passed. Not many. She was still very young. She was suffering from PTSD and depression that the Belgian state regarded as being incurable. And so they euthanized her. Um, and they, the, the official who oversaw the case, I'll read the quote out, said that it was because she was in such a state of mental suffering that her request was logically accepted. Um, so I wanted to get your view on this because I know people have talked about things like the slippery slope before, but it, it, this, this is very worrying to me and I can just so easily envisage the dystopian situation in which this meshes in with all of the other ills in our society at the moment, including things like cancel culture and people's financial hardship and so on, that um, really we have, on that slippery slope, gone from the bare bones justification for euthanasia to basically euthanizing people because they're sad or lonely or feel that no one will ever love them. Wait a minute, when you say euthanizing, um, you have to remember word. just te no, <laughs> technically they have want, they say they want to be. You have to remember mm -hmm. that. I mean, it's not like they're being dragged off the street or whatever. That, doesn't change anything mm. in my eye, but let's just be clear about mm -hmm. that. They didn't just put her down. No. Um, whatever. I, 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 but someone does have to. It's one of those things. You. The way it's presented, the way the way it's presented, the argument for euthanasia, the way it's presented, sometimes seems undeniable. You know, in the sense that if people really want to, if they've got terminal illness, all of that, and you're, when you're when you're looking at this, you think, well, yes, I can understand that, but there's just an instinct back of one's mind, at least to the back of my mind, I think actually no, this is this is this is the road to hell being paved with good yeah. intentions, you know. So you know, on the general issue of euthanasia, no, I I think it's um 
It's also interesting to me, and I, don't, don't, I know it's widening it a bit, I don't know what you feel, but if you look at the, because I think this will become a great liberal issue, mm -hmm. like abortion. If you look at these sort of issues that are the real, you know, sort of, sh not shibboleths exactly, but the real kind of landmark issues for liberal, where you stand on abortion, where you stand on gay marriage, and also increasingly on euthanasia, what do they all have in common? They sort of have the not continuing of the species in mm -hmm. common. I mean, you know, that's what alarms me a little bit. It's like almost that it's anything that's anti-life, uh, oh, this could only happen when re a religious structure has entirely gone, mm -hmm. I feel. There's also something slightly eugenicist, I think, about mm. this. The idea that pe someone living an undesirable existence could logically use that as an argument for the state assisting them in, in offing themselves. And when you see the comments of this uh, Canadian medical person, Roy, who's quite high up in all of these things, and the way he's, a, he's treating and reacts to all of this, is in that very clinical, unemotional mm. way, which you do sort of equate with the eugenicist mm. movement, where, of course, they had... They, they saw it actually as being a way to alleviate suffering, right? Why, if you're a young child, why have your entire life in poverty and suffering when you can just euthanize yeah. that three-year-old and have him avoid decades well, of life? A, there was actually a quote from um, a eugenicist that was cited in the spiked article that I mentioned, um, where this eugenicist was saying that, that this person would rather chloroform the, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but would rather basically go into the streets and chloroform the, the, the poor and the helpless rather than see them suffer um which is it, it goes back to an attitude that i think we see more broadly in society which is this sort of really nasty attitude of i'm i'm doing this for your own good i'm doing this thing that hurts you but it's for your own good to which the repost is who made you god right and uh, where would the, where would, we wouldn't mm -hmm. have any charlie chaplins in the world and all these people who came up from mm -hmm. this from squalor and everything else and it was through the genius and the perseverance of their character that we had some of the greatest minds it and it's through suffering of course that we got some of our greatest works of art and music and so forth you know are through people who are distressed now in Bel belgium and canada actually are the two worst culprits here but in, in Belgium, I understand, is only about 30 people have had this happen to them. In Canada, it's 3% of yes. deaths. 3% really? of deaths, which I, you know, Canada's death rate is 300,000 a year. We're talking 9,000 people have been euthanized in Canada per year. This is an astonishing thing. Now, I've actually struggled for a long time over the issue of euthanasia. Uh, and I, it's a very complicated subject and it's very, it's very sensitive, very emotive. And I never really know one way or the other which side I stand on when it comes to incurable uh, degenerative diseases like motor neuron disease. If you've got a functioning brain, but your entire body breaks down on you and you're incapable of moving and you've got 20 years of a life where you're trapped and unable to do anything, I can fully understand why somebody would want to have their life ending. Now, an able-bodied person has the right and ability to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. if, you're denied, if your body is unable to perform that act, I can certainly see the example in that sort of a case or if you're in extreme pain with incurable cancer and you're going to be dying in a year, why not shorten that? I can absolutely understand and, and sympathize with that. But then, of course, we do have the slippery slope issue. Once you've enacted mm -hmm. a legislation for something, as we've seen in Canada, phase one of the law in Canada was just for those very valid, I think, reasons. 
but then in came in stage two. And now you have this stage three sort of thing, where it's depression. And depression is something which is, you know, never permanent. And it's mm. when you're dealing with mental illnesses, if this girl in Belgium had really wanted to kill herself, she would have done it. It's also she so would have committed suicide. Mm. She has the ability to commit suicide. Mm. The fact that these people don't commit suicide, but choose the the option of going mm. for euthanasia, mm. I speaks I think speaks volumes. Mm. And also, there's there was another um, man cited in one of these stories who um, was impoverished, and he said that he didn't want to die, but he'd rather be dead than homeless, and he thought he was going to become homeless. So you can and he was euthanized. And I don't think he was, but he was somebody who said that under this new expansion of the law, he would be mm. euthanized because he doesn't want to become homeless. He'd rather mm. be dead. Um, and as you were saying about that cold clinical attitude, one of the justifications given in, given in one of the official documents was that it would save um, taxpayer money on healthcare costs. So it's this sort of like callous calculation of, well, maybe however many thousands of Canadian citizens might be um, euthanized through this program. But also, on the other hand, it means that we don't have to pay for their health care or for their therapy or anything like this. And so like this veteran who's obviously fought for his country and now they're suggesting to him that maybe he might like to kill himself because he's got PTSD yeah. rather than actually Can you imagine him. it? Can you imagine going to see your doctor and, and he says, well, mate, maybe you want to have euthanasia. Mm -hmm. you, and that's never even in your radar before that point. I think Shocking. It's a, I mean, I, I, I would agree. I, I have that same feeling about, you know, people who've got shocking kind of quality of life, no quality of life. Absolutely. Um, but I think that ultimately the guide, the best guide here like I applied it during the pandemic, for example, is to look at the people who are really supporting it. Mm. And then that should make your mind up for you in a way. Even if you sort of feel, yes, I can see the point of that, and, but I'm a bit on the fence. Mm -hmm. If you look at the people, like it's like the people who are the most rigid when it comes to mask wearing, for example. I just, I can, I know a lot about, I can tell what they're like. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with euthanasia. What kind of person would devote themselves to getting euthanasia in on the statute book? That's how I look at it. What's your motive? I'd be very interested to know what our viewers think, if you wanted to comment below, um, because I think probably there's a wider variety of opinion on this issue than, than on that, most. I remember with my father, you know, people, people always say, oh, you know, if I had that, oh, I won't, you know, put a pillow over my, I wouldn't want to live in a, life becomes very sweet you mm -hmm. know however ill well, there's another aspect of this too which i forgot to mention which is of course assisted suicide rather than mm. euthanasia mm. so right rather than put it then the big problem is giving doctors the power of life and death over an individual mm. whereas of course mm -hmm. we do know of course of a loving spouse who may want to help their partner mm. pass you know go mm. through if their partner's life is complete agony and pain every day and there's no value to it you know you can you can look at to see who's supporting these things, but you know. But for these certain cases, I sort of think, what would I do in that position if I was mm. in pain every single day and I could conceivably live for another twenty years, mm. where every day was abject agony? Mm -hmm. um, would I? Would I? How would I want to end my days? Although there, though, you see, yes, but it's, it's this odd way that the law brings about certain kinds of behaviour. You know, if you were that person's partner and you helped them. There would be consequences for you. That's what so I mean. therefore, yeah. So therefore, you could say, well, in that case, it's utterly failsafe in an odd way. It's when somehow or other someone can go along, some little old lady who's been pressurized, the family. You know what families can be like. You know, 
oh come on you know you're obviously losing your mind you know and all the rest of it. and she goes along and says i i think exactly. i want to yeah, yeah. that's why it's, it's, it's very it's, it's very complicated but mm -hmm. i was thinking I think assisted suicide, I'd be happier with that sort of thing being legalised mm. rather than euthanasia. Yes, being, being I think legalized. ultimately as well that the, it's, you were talking about this sort of drive within our society, it's a kind of death instinct. Mm. And I think that actually all of this is another sign that we've basically lost the structure of society that would mm. give those mm. people hope and reason to live and to, to pull them out of that atomized existence that is making them feel lonely. But anyway, we're going to have to end on that note. So um, I think we could probably talk about this issue for a lot longer. I'd love to know what you think. So please do mm. um, comment below. Let us know what you think on this topic, on any of the topics that we've discussed today. We've been getting some very good comments lately, actually, haven't we, on the, on the show? Yes, yeah. yeah, so please continue the discussion mm. in the comment section. Thank and you, do Peter. Subscribe. Do subscribe to the channel <laughs> if you haven't done so already. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> like, subscribe, comment below. We'll see you next time on Newspeak. Yeah. Hello, if you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember, also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.